Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be back here with you. My name is Dave Latham. I'm the RUF campus minister at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. And it's always a great joy to be able to be welcomed back. I haven't done anything to make y'all shun me yet. So here I am again. Thank you for having me um, on this great Palm Sunday. And if you have your Bible with you, we're going to look at John chapter 12. And what we're going to be talking about this morning is something that might hit home. I know it's hit home with me in the sense of what does it mean to have a king? We've sang all these hymns about Jesus coming in as a triumphant king. Um, you know, his who can explain the marvelous deeds of the Lord, you know, the idea of providence and the idea of sovereignty. And, but what does it functionally look like? How does having a king in our lives give us hope? I mean, if you're like me, you probably had moments in time to where you are it's just maybe been hard to get out of bed some mornings. You see the brokenness around. You may see the brokenness in your own heart. And you go, if Jesus wasn't sitting on the throne, it'd be hard for me to get out of bed. And I know for me, just to give you a quick update of what's going on at CNU, it's kind of been that kind of year for me. It's been a hard year emotionally. But even as I've, this is our second year on campus at CNU versus a startup, we're still small, but... Little by little, students are starting to kind of let me into their lives a little bit when they realize that I'm not going anywhere, that we bought a house and we're kind of sticking around for a little bit. And so students are starting to let me in, and what I've seen and what they've told me has really stunned me and made me just kind of kick back and go, Lord, I have no idea how to handle this. I need you to, I need you to, to work here. But God is at work. God's at work on the campus of CNU. I mean, most notably, we've, we've got a great batch of students who have come, and they're getting to know each other. We took zero to summer conference last year. We're taking seven or eight this year. You know, students who really need to hear the gospel, students who are really wrestling and struggling. And I pray that you would, I ask that you'd pray for our campus. We've had a lot of students who are just kind of running away from brokenness and running away from me. And I pray that, that the Lord would soften their hearts, that, they would, that the gospel would be good news to them. And that, that I would be a safe place for them. And so please pray. That's a specific prayer that I have. And that some students, I've got a few that I'm chasing down. I want them to come to summer conference. And I, and I want people to, to help them get there. So please pray specifically for that. So that's, that's what's going on at CNU. But let's open up to John 12. We're going to read verses 12 through 19 together. Read about the triumphal entry. I'd like to remind you again, while this is a story of Jesus and a narrative of his life, it's way, way more than that. This is the very word of God, and we'd be very wise if we give attention to it. So here now the reading of God's word from John 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray together this morning. 
Our God and our King, we pray that you would remove distractions from our hearts, that we can really, truly see you. Help us to come to grips with what it means for you to be our King. May we find great hope, not in ourselves, but in you and you alone, Lord. We need you to meet us here. We are broken, needy people. We are distracted, busy folks, and we pray that you would help us just to quiet and calm ourselves so that we can learn more about you and more about ourselves, all for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to admit something to you as I start out. When I was looking at this passage and I was thinking about, I got called to, to come and preach on Palm Sunday. I have to admit, when I started prepping the sermon, I felt like giving up from the start. I mean, you look at this passage and I thought, I've been a pastor for maybe an hour. What could I possibly say that has not been said 10,000 times before? What do you do with Palm Sunday? I mean, this is one of these sermons, it comes every single year. What do you say that hasn't been said in the history of Christendom? And I just felt like giving up. I mean, I read the story again and again and I had a hard time getting excited about it. But then I realized what the real problem was. It wasn't the story of the triumphal entry. It was me. It was my heart. It was my hard heart. I mean, if you're like me, you've probably sat through so many Palm Sunday services that the story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem just kind of falls flat in your heart. You read it and you're, okay, what's what's new? It's like buying a beach house or going on vacation, you know, where you step foot into the house for the first time, And those plate glass windows are there, either at the beach or at the mountains, wherever you like to go. And you see that vista, whether it's the waves crashing or it's the, you know, the the eagles flying through the sky in the mountains. You know, this huge view over the valley. And you find yourself forgetting about the suitcases that are in your car. And all you can do is just stand at the window and just go, wow. It just takes your breath away. I mean, over time, the problem is, is like, you know, we, we, even if it's a vacation home, if we're, if we're there just for a week, over time, the view loses its luster. The initial punch of it just kind of fades into the background almost, especially if you own the property and you've been going there year after year. You know, suddenly the view just kind of falls into the background and it's just kind of there. It doesn't grip you and excite you as it did once before. And really, it's funny because it's not until somebody actually comes and visits us that we're again reminded of just how beautiful the view is outside the window. Somebody comes to the house you've been going to for years and they go, wow, this is great. And you turn around and realize, yeah, it is great. It is that good. Maybe you're into playing video games or watching movies. And let's say you get a new movie or you get a new game and you're just really excited about it. I mean, you can't wait for it to come. You saw it in theaters and you want to bring it home so you can watch it a hundred times. And you're just really excited about it. You can't stop thinking about it. You're excited about the graphics or you're excited about the plot line or you're excited about all the buzz concerning it. And how you felt when you saw it the first time, kind of looking to get that back. But then what happens? You watch the movie a couple of times. You play the game. You might beat it. You get tired of it, and you just kind of move on. And suddenly the the DVD or the game that you were waiting so long for it to come kind of gets exiled to the stack of stuff that we used to like. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And then slowly, like, we add a new one to the stack. And so that one that we really love kind of gets goes down and down, and then it gets exiled to the drawer. You know you do it. We all do it. 
The thing is, is that our hearts get rusty and the promises of God that used to excite us slowly fade. We forget what it means for Jesus to be king because we're too busy trying to master our daily lives. I mean, think about the schoolwork you might have to do, tests and papers coming up. Maybe you have children at home that you're trying to, to figure out what to do with them. You have a job. You have, may have a sick relative that you're caring for. I mean, the list just goes on and on where it feels like we're just spinning our wheels. Life gets busy. Our expectations don't get met. I mean, walking by faith is hard, and over time, the colorful vibrancy of Holy Week just kind of starts fading to gray in our hearts. It just kind of falls flat. I mean, we lose hope in ourselves, too. We all have an attic full of failed attempts. I mean, think about the exercise equipment from your attempt to finally get in shape. Or maybe there's a musical instrument that's up there in the attic that you were just bound and determined to practice every day. Or maybe there's a stack of books that you were really excited about reading and you just kind of never got around to it. You started out so strong only to eventually wave the white flag and move on. I mean, maybe your spiritual attic is full of failed attempts too. Failed attempts to kickstart your personal prayer life or devotional life. Failed attempts to reach out to your neighbors or co-workers. Failed attempts to get involved in the life of the church. I mean, we've all had times when we felt like waving a white flag because either the view lost its luster or we lost hope in ourselves. But because of Christ's triumphal entry, we can find hope in Jesus and wave a palm branch instead of a white flag. The main question we're going to be looking at this morning is, how does the picture of Jesus riding on a donkey give us hope? And we're going to look at three main points this morning if you're note-taking kind of people. Here's our three main points. Remember, we're asking, how do we find hope? We're going to answer it, we find hope in His fearlessness. We find hope in His fulfillment. And we find hope in His future. So fearlessness, fulfillment, and future. Those will be our three main points this morning as we look at this text. Well, let's jump right into point one. We find hope in his fearlessness. And this is basically verses 12 and 13. What we're doing here this morning is we're celebrating Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of Holy Week. And this passage marks the beginning of the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry. But I think if we're honest and we think, of, we think about past uh, ways that we view this week, most of the attention goes to the end of the week. You have the Lord's Supper, you have the betrayal of Jesus, you have the trial before Pontius Pilate, you have the crucifixion, you have the resurrection. And of course, these are all absolutely essential and powerful events in the life of Jesus. So much so that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ's death and resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is futile and we are to be pitied. These are absolutely essential events. But I think in many ways we kind of gloss over the palm branches and gloss over the triumphal entry so that we can hurry up and get to the good stuff, for lack of a better phrase, that this kind of just falls by the wayside. We're like, okay, that's great. What I want us to think about is what Jesus is really doing here in this passage. What Jesus is doing is riding calmly straight into the jaws of death. Right into it. I mean, look at verse 12. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. There's this huge crowd that gathered in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover feast. The central feast, the central event for Jews, different commentators said well over a million plus people would have converged upon Jerusalem for this event. This is huge. 
Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, which is the hub of Jewish religion, full of religious leaders who hated him and wanted him out of the picture. They plotted to kill him. And in verse 9, we read that they wanted to kill Lazarus too because people were seeing what he had done, had, were seeing Lazarus and raised from the dead and they started following Jesus. So they not only wanted to take out Jesus, they wanted to take Lazarus out too. I mean, thinking back on how our own hearts get rusty, recognize who actually starts waving the palm branches and shouting Hosanna. It's not the local religious leaders. It's not the locals. It's all the people who had flocked to Jerusalem. It's all the foreigners and the outsiders, so to speak. Those are the people who pick up the palm branches. As I was reading, John Calvin had a great... Uh, well, it's Calvin, but he had a great uh, verse. I mean, everything he says is great. But what he said here, in noting on this verse, was really, was really great, and I want to read it to you. He said, Foreigners were far more ready to pay homage to the Son of God than were the citizens of Jerusalem, who should have been an example to everyone else. But it's a fault common to nearly every age that the more closer and more familiarly God has shown himself to men, the more audaciously they have despised him. Think about it. The ones who lived in the central city of God, in the shadow of the temple, were the ones who missed the fact that the long-awaited true Passover lamb was right under their noses. I mean, we're the same way. We might not despise God. We might not openly uh, show our hostility. But I think in many ways, like this story might have grown so familiar to us that we, we might think, okay, what's next? I'm just kind of over it. The great promises that are on display here in John 12 just kind of slide by undetected. But it's even easier to look at the Pharisees and kind of shake our heads and go, boy, they really missed it. They just didn't get it, did they? We don't get it either. But before we keep heaping coals on the Pharisees for how they missed the mark, the crowd is just as mistaken as they are. They start waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna. And we've already read this this morning out of Psalm 118. The only time this word is used in the Old Testament is in that psalm. And it's translated, save us or save now. I mean, remember at the time, you have to put yourself in the shoes of what's going on here. Kind of, kind of get in the, in the you know, history car or whatever and fly back and see what's going on right now. Remember, Jerusalem was controlled by the Romans. There was, remember, Jesus was tried before Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman prefect of Judea. There was he was crucified on a Roman cross. And the people of Jerusalem were taxed and oppressed by an occupying force, and they wanted deliverance from the Romans. That's what's going on in history. And in verse 13, we see the news of Jesus had spread, and the crowd thought that Jesus would become the king of Israel. It says, so they took branches out of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They started waving palm branches and spreading cloaks on the ground. It was an ancient practice of welcoming home a victorious military leader. And I started asking the question, why palm branches? Where's that come from? And in Jewish history, there was this thing called the Maccabean Revolt in 164 B.C., and the Seleucids held, Ju held Jerusalem, and this guy named Judas the Hammer Maccabeus. I mean, what a great name. You're known as Judas the Hammer Maccabeus. This guy uh, fought against the Seleucids and defeated them and basically kind of freed up religious worship and kind of restored the people. And they celebrated this victory by waving palm branches. It's similar to like a ticker tape parade in New York. You know, the end of the war is here, victory, here comes the ticker tape. That's kind of what's going on here. 
And basically what happened is the palm branch became a symbol of national pride. So much so that later coins that were minted had palm branches on them. That's where we get the palm branch from. I mean, they were looking for Jesus to fight the Romans and restore their nation to its former glory. And the amazing thing about that is that Jesus came to do much more than that. They wanted, free us, save us from the Romans. And Jesus came to do way more than that. But the problem was, is when he didn't meet the crowd's expectations, they shouted for his death a few days later. He came to do way more than free them from the Romans. And when he didn't give them instantly what they wanted, they shouted for his death. I think about what Jesus did not bring with him to Jerusalem. He didn't bring an army. He didn't bring any weapons. He didn't bring this great white stallion, you know, festooned with jewels to show that he's this mighty conquering warrior. He didn't bring that. No, he came on a young donkey covered with blankets and no protection. Why? Why would he do this? There was no fighting necessary. Jesus knew that he, what he was getting into, and he processed unafraid through the streets of Jerusalem to offer himself as the final Passover lamb to bring redemption to a broken world. Isaiah 53, 7. Great, great verse. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Pharisees were afraid that the Romans would see the commotion and send an army to suppress them. They're like, you know, remember the Romans are in control here. And they're afraid this great crowd, this, you know, this rabble-rouser Jesus is coming and they're going to send an army and we're going to get in trouble. But Jesus was not concerned with taking the fight to the Romans. He was not concerned with taking the fight to the Romans because he was about to take the fight to hell itself and come out the victor. He was about to take it straight to the real source of sin, hell itself, fight it and come back. He didn't care about the Romans. He was fighting and going into hell for you and for me. Amazing. Riding into the jaws of death, into Jerusalem, but riding also into the jaws of hell itself. To come out victorious on Easter. This gives us hope as we fight against sin and brokenness in our lives because the true king has come and he has come and he fights for us. I mean, when sin has us by the neck and we want to wave the white flag in defeat, we've all been there. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I mean, you might be asking, if you're familiar with the story, you might say, well, what about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, didn't he ask the Father to take the cup from him? That doesn't seem very fearless. What's going on with that? Even as Jesus is wrestling with his impending death, he knew exactly what was coming. He was in on the planning meeting from the foundation of the world. He knew what was coming, and even in the midst of that, he never ran, ever Submitted to the will of his father, submitted to the plan, and kept going. In the midst of, I mean, sweating drops of blood. In the midst of that, he never ran. He never gave up. Because he knew that the scriptures must be fulfilled. That the great rescue plan for humanity had to be fulfilled. Which brings us to our second point. We find hope in his fulfillment. Think about what you have in your hands right now. I mean, we are so blessed to be able to hold God's complete word in our hands and know how the biblical story ends. 
We know how the Easter story ends. We know how the rest of history ends. I mean, you have that right here in your hands. But however, sometimes just like the video game or the movie you've seen a hundred times, the story just kind of gets stale and loses its luster. What we get in these next few verses is a reminder of really just how important the triumphal entry was at the time. Let's look at verse 15. Starting at verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What we get here is John referencing Zechariah 9.9. And 20 years after exile's return from the Babylonian captivity, God sent Zechariah to encourage the people living in Jerusalem to not give up. They had laid the foundation of the destroyed temple and had faced hardship and oppression ever since then. And God spoke through Zechariah and reminded the people that one day he would judge the oppressors and bring forward the true king. This verse in Zechariah 9 that John quotes had been written over 500 years before Jesus was ever on the scene as a man. And the people of God had waited that long for it to be fulfilled. 500 years here in this prophecy. Now Jesus comes as that long-expected servant king to take his rightful place and to fulfill that prophecy. And that's why he welcomes the praises of the people. Because he's, he is walking right into what he justly has come into him. He's the king. And look at what the, what's the command given there in Zechariah 9, this verse that John quotes. What's the command that it starts with? Fear not. Fear not, daughter of Zion, your king's come. Fear not. Imagine the perceived absurdity of this prophecy when it was first given. I'm not discounting the prophecy. I'm just thinking about if you heard this for the first time, what would you, what would you hear? The king of the universe will not come on a big horse, but on a beast of burden. And not just that, a short, young donkey covered with blankets. R.C. Sproul wrote in his commentary on John, he said, The donkeys people ride in the Holy Land are nothing like the donkeys we breed in the United States. They're much smaller, so that men have to bend their knees as they ride so that their feet don't hit the ground. So think about you're on a short donkey anyway that's different from our, you know, like we do everything big in America, okay? So like these donkeys are even smaller, but even more than that, it's a young one which is even smaller than that. And Jesus, the king of the universe, riding in with his feet up underneath him so that his feet won't hit the ground. What if you did that in a crowd of people? You would be absolutely humiliated. And look at what Jesus does so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He rides in on that donkey with people waving palm branches at him. It's amazing. I mean, think about the royal wedding the world was fixed on last April between William and Catherine. You remember all the pomp and circumstance and all that surrounded it? Did you see any of the royal family riding triumphantly with knees bent on a squatty donkey covered with blankets? No. Lots of carriages, no donkeys. I mean, on the surface, when we look at this, the donkey seems so trite. But it is the exact sign God chose to signal the coming of the king. God using the foolish things to shame the strong. Everybody else would have picked the white stallion. And God said, I don't want that. I want a young donkey. The the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I mean, think about what you would have felt if your whole life, the prophecy of Zechariah 9 was read to you. 
and now you are watching it come to life in front of you. You would have remembered a donkey. And right now, Jesus is coming in and he's on that donkey. Now think about how Jesus fulfilled every one of the Old Testament prophecies and how we still have prophecies about him that have yet to be fulfilled. How could you not find hope in all the redemptive promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus? How could you not find hope to press on when Jesus has given you a perfect track record and then promises that the best is yet to come? Behold, I am making all things new. That is going to happen. The king is coming again. And he, we can take him at his word because all of the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled. And he said, here's more about me and I'm coming back again. And we can say, yes, Lord, thank you. That is hope. I mean, do we fully understand everything that's going on in this passage and going on to understand with the plan of God? No, 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 we don't. I mean, we're, we sang this song this morning. Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom his, all his wondrous deeds? No one can. But look at verse 16. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I mean, we don't understand everything, and neither did the disciples. They were confused at first. And only after the resurrection did a few more pieces of the puzzle fall into place. Suddenly, Zechariah's prophecy made sense, and their faith was strengthened and deepened. I mean, just like us, we read the events in the life of Jesus, and we don't fully understand. But as we live and as we grow and we follow King Jesus, little by little, more of those pieces kind of fall into place. And suddenly we can look back and go, oh, you are there. We'll never get the full picture until Jesus comes again in glory. But the amazing thing is he's promised to do it. He's promised that he's coming back to redeem everything. There's this great hymn by Robert Murray McShane. It's called All I Owe. And this, one of these verses just really stuck out to me when I was thinking about this. It says, when I stand before your throne... Dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see you as you are, love you with unsinning heart, then Lord, I shall fully know. We have no idea what it looks like to love Jesus with an unsinning heart. Everything we do is just fraught with sin and selfishness. And it just makes us long for the day where we're like, I just want to look at you and quit looking at myself. What would that look like to stand before your throne in glory? And, I, and sin has been removed because he died to take it. What does that look like? What a day. I mean, we have no idea what it meant for Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath. We have no idea what it meant. Riding into Jerusalem in the midst of this. We had no idea. But Jesus drank it for us so that we could be dressed in beauty, not our own. And now we can join with the great cloud of witnesses and wave a palm branch to our victorious king. I mean, look around you and think about what's happened in your own life and we see in the lives of others. The prophecies are being fulfilled. The kingdom is on the move. The king sits on the throne. He's changing your heart and he's changing other people's hearts too. The king is on the move. There is hope in God's word. There is hope in Jesus because it's so easy for us to lose hope and we pick up the white flag and we start waving it when life gets hard. I mean, th I was thinking about my own past semester, this, semester, this year in, at CNU. I mean, year two of ministry, we started up last year, and students telling me all this stuff, and people running from me, and just still trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, 
students have told me things that have left me absolutely speechless and sad. I look at them and say, I have no idea what to do with this. All I can do is sit across from the table and just cry with you. That's all I can do. And just saying, Lord, I need you to help me. Help me love them. Help me to quit trying to fix them. I have no idea what to do with this. I've felt inadequate. I've felt incompetent. I've wanted to quit. I tell people all the time that maybe like every now and then the orange apron at Home Depot starts looking good. You know, I'm like, I've had these moments where I'm just like, I just want to cash, I just want to lock the door to the store and walk away. But the cries of the crowd have rung true for me this past year. Faced with the brokenness of the campus, faced with the brokenness in my own heart, I've cried, come quickly, Lord. Save now. Save us, Lord. I mean, you may have inwardly cried that for years in a particular situation, pleading with Jesus to return and restore what the locusts have eaten. But in verse 19, we can really find hope in his future. Let's read that as we move into point three. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You can almost feel the exasperation of the Pharisees at this moment. I mean, as the local religious leaders, they were a big part of the Passover festivities. I mean, all these people had flocked to Jerusalem. They were kind of the local guys there, you know, ready to handle the festivities and the ceremonies and all the temple stuff that was going on. And now Jesus is on the scene and he's stealing some of their thunder. And they see the crowd following Jesus and they lash out in defeat and anger. But what's going, what really is sad about this verse when we look at it is that you think about the Pharisees and what they had done in Jerusalem. I mean, they had spent their lives memorizing and teaching the law of God. They knew all the prophecies. They knew the righteous requirements of the law of God. They had gone through, you know, Passover feast after Passover feast where actual lambs were brought in and killed. I mean, this vivid stuff. I mean, they had done that over and over. And now, the promised Messiah that they had taught about the, the true Passover lamb, the only one who could set them free from the crushing weight of sin, was standing right in front of them, and their hearts were blinded with jealousy. In verse 19, you get the sense that the Pharisees might be waving a white flag of their own. I mean, they look around and they say, look, the world, what we're doing here, we're done. The world's following after him. Instead of embracing the lamb of God they had spoken about for so long, they decided to use the same mouth to send Jesus to the cross a few days later. Prophesied about the coming lamb and then sent the lamb to the slaughter with the same mouth. The same crowd that had lauded him in the streets would also join in the calls for Jesus' crucifixion. But verse 18 tells us that their interest in Jesus was mostly based on curiosity and false expectations. They came because they heard Jesus this whole Lazarus thing, like, we got to go check this guy out. Their visions of this great military coup where Jesus would ride in and restore Jewish nationalism would soon be dashed, and they would reject Jesus while he was dying on the cross, dying for their sins. They would reject him. But Revelation 13, 8 tells us that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was all a part of the plan from the very beginning to redeem a broken world. Do you remember where the word Hosanna was found in the Old Testament? Psalm 118. It's the only place it's used in the Old Testament. We've already read it this, uh, already this morning, but I want to read it again. 
Because there's something else Psalm 18 says a few verses before the word Hosanna shows up. Psalm 118 verses 22, starting in verse 22. says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Then verse 25 comes on the scene. Save us. Hosanna. We pray, O Lord. This is the future of Jesus that gives us hope. He was rejected by men. He was rejected by his own so that he could become our cornerstone. His heart was pierced through so that ours could be changed by grace. He humbly rode into the jaws of death, into the jaws of hell itself, so that we might have life. Now Jesus sits on the throne as the true king, and we wave the palm branches of our hearts before him because he is worthy of our praise. Look at what he has done for you. Not because you're great, and not because you're lovely, because you're not but simply because He chose to set His love upon you, went to the cross for you while you were at your most rebellious. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, not when we had it all together, not when we were lovely, when we were broken and rebellious and shaking our fists at Him, Jesus went to the cross for us. I mean, the Pharisees were exasperated with Jesus because they thought the whole world was going after Him. But the amazing thing about it is their exasperation is now our hope. King Jesus is on the move, and his kingdom continues to spread throughout the whole world. The Pharisees saw him and said, look, the whole world's going after him. And we say, yes, great, the king, please, Lord, expand your kingdom. But this kingdom is different. It's not a kingdom built on the military conquest of an earthly king who beat back his enemies with all this might. It's a kingdom built on the sacrifices of the only king in history who died for his enemies. He didn't beat them back and kill them. He died for them. It's amazing. It's crazy talk. That's why the gospel is good news. Because broken people are brought in. But the only king in history who laid down his life for people who hated him. Suddenly, Hosanna takes on a different meaning. It moves from save us, Lord, to save more, Lord. Save more. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Save more, Lord. As we conclude, we need Jesus to restore the wonder of Easter to our hearts. I needed it. I'm looking at this passage going, it's just kind of fallen flat. We need the Spirit. We need Jesus to remind us yet again of the wonder of Easter and the wonder of Holy Week and the wonder of Maundy Thursday and celebrating the Lord's Supper and the crucifixion and the resurrection and all of this stuff that just kind of falls flat on our hearts. We've all had times where we felt like giving up because we failed to see change in our own hearts or, the change, or change in others. Prayed for others, we've asked God to change us, and we just don't see it, and so we just want to just give up. We've all experienced pain and suffering, brokenness in our families, maybe struggling with doubts that we have where we look and go, Lord, where are you? Is this really true? Do I really believe this stuff? Where are you? We've all wanted to pick up the white flag, lock the doors to the shop, and walk away. We've all wanted to do that. But hope in only ourselves leads to no hope at all. We need true hope. We need true hope grounded in something other than ourselves. 
And Jesus is looking us square in the face and says, don't hope in yourself, hope in me. I'm the king. And I went to hell for you and back because I love you and I want to show you grace. That's true hope. That's hope you can hang your hat on. That's hope you can take to the bank because that hope's never going anywhere. That hope will always be there. That's hope to get through the day, even as we sang earlier. I mean, what Jesus is telling us to do is put down the white flag and pick up a palm branch. The king has come, he's here, and he's coming again. Put down the white flag. Don't give up. Look to the king and wave a palm branch because he has come out victorious for you and for me. Amazing. I want to close with this. I want to read Psalm 24 to you. At least the last little bit. Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Psalm 24 reads like this. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.